Take your Bibles with me this morning and open back to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to turn pretty quickly from there to Mark chapter 10 and then to Luke chapter 18. So get ready to do some flipping through the pages this morning. But as we're looking at, at the last part now of Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is moving with his disciples from Jericho toward Jerusalem. Uh, this, this was a, a major trek of about 18 miles, but the real change in geography here was that it was up from Jericho to Jerusalem, an increase of 3,000 feet in elevation from one to the other. So Jesus and his disciples are about to begin this climb to Jerusalem. We know why he's going there because you notice that by the time we get to chapter 21, the next chapter brings us to the triumphal entry, to Jesus coming and now embarking on the events that are going to lead him to the crucifixion, to the last week before he is arrested, betrayed, arrested, condemned, tried, and put to death. As he is there traveling, He's traveling with a crowd because they are in the process of a pilgrimage for Passover. Everybody is headed to Jerusalem. So there's a large crowd of people. Some are his disciples. Some are following him. Some are just in the crowd because all of these people are moving toward Jerusalem to get ready for the week that's going to precede the coming Passover. And in the text, then we read that as Jesus is there, it says, now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet, but they cried out all the more, saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Turn with me now, if you will, to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at the account, same account, recorded by Mark and then recorded by Luke. A few facts that don't differ, but that just are different. A few things that are added by Mark and by Luke and their accounts. Mark 10, verses 46 through 52. Now, when they came to Jericho, as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, and he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Now, one difference we notice is that Matthew tells us there's two blind men. Mark tells us just about one. And it's not that the other wasn't there. There's the belief that Mark is focusing on this one because he names him. And the reason Mark would have named him so far after the fact of the event is we know, and we'll read in the Luke's account, we read it here, Bartimaeus, which by the way, Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. He followed Jesus. Now, you know, so often Jesus would heal people and they would go about their way. Even when he healed the 10 lepers, only one came back to say thank you. 
This man received his sight and from that point on followed Jesus. And it's believed that he was someone who was known in the New Testament church because Mark is writing his gospel and he's saying, some of you know Bartimaeus. And you remember he was blind and Jesus, the week before he went up into Jerusalem to be crucified, called him to himself and healed him. Turn over with me now to Luke chapter 18. Luke's account is in Luke 18 verses 35 through 43. Luke records it this way. Then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging and hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by and he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him saying, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And if you would believe, we have three accounts from the three gospels. And of course, you've got eyewitnesses who are giving <laughs> records and who are talking to the disciples who were there. And as they're recounting this by inspiration of the spirit and they're recording these things in the gospels, Somebody says one says two and the other two say one. And then some say he was going out of Jericho and Luke says he was coming near to Jericho. Oh, you've got contradictions in the Bible. You can't treat. You can't trust it. That just goes to show you the foolishness of those who don't believe God's word. If listen, if there were two blind men, guess what that means? There was one. So none of the accounts are wrong. Two accounts talk about one man, Bartimaeus. The other account talks about both. Some say that, well, was he going into Jerusalem or Jericho or coming out of Jericho? Well, guess what? The answer is yes. Because you go out of the ruins of old Jericho, up the road three miles to the new Jericho that was built by Herod before you went out the other side of that Jericho to head toward Jerusalem. So they had just left the old city of Jericho, moving toward the modern city of Jericho, heading on to Jerusalem. You know, we should have paid better attention in geography class. The truth is the truth. And as we get the record from these three eyewitnesses, there may be differences in the story that's presented, but the story is the same and the story is true. There is no contradiction here. So what we find Jesus doing, having this multitude with him, traveling on this pilgrimage, Jesus passes by these two blind beggars. Again, we know that one of them was named Bartimaeus. The other one, we don't know his name. But here is what we do know about them from these accounts. As they were sitting there by the road, and by the way, this was common, outside the city, especially on a pilgrimage route, they knew the biggest crowd of the year is going to be marching to Jerusalem in the next two weeks for Passover. So all of the beggars were there. There are some commentators that think that there was actually probably a caravan of beggars and the blind and the lame that people went and took and sat along the road between the two Jerichos. And it could have been a crowd of 100 up to thousands of people who were begging, knowing that people were going and knowing, by the way, they're going to go to Passover. They're going to one of the biggest feasts of the year. So they're going to be in a charitable mood. They're going to want to do their good deeds and get right with God before they get there for the Passover. So this, this was a good season for the beggars to be there. So they're there. Bartimaeus has got his cloak laid out. As they would, they would take their outer cloak off. They would lay that out in front of them. The people would come. They would throw alms into the cloak. That would be collected on a daily basis. What we know, though, is that they weren't just begging. Because as the commotion of the crowd was heard, they heard that Jesus of Nazareth 
was passing by and they knew who he was. Now, how does this blind beggar know who Jesus of Nazareth is? No doubt he had heard stories about him. They had heard about healing. They had heard that blind had received their sight, lame had walked, even the dead had been raised. People were talking. The crowds were murmuring. Everybody was interested to know, why is Jesus going to Jerusalem? What's Jesus going to do in Jerusalem? He's, he had just predicted that he was going to go and be betrayed and condemned, and was going to be executed, and was going to be raised. There was all of this wonder. People had begun to ask the question, is he the Messiah? Could it really be? We've waited our whole life. Could it really be? And as the crowds talked about who he was, these two blind beggars knew who Jesus was when they heard it was Jesus of Nazareth and they heard the noise of the crowd. They couldn't see him because they were blind, but they started to shout as loudly as they could to get his attention. Now you can imagine... Jesus, usually as he traveled, would teach while he went. Sometimes he would stop. Sometimes he would teach on the road. We saw just last week, he pulled the disciples off the road to give them a lesson and to teach them some things. So Jesus is there with the crowd. The crowd wants to know what Jesus is going to say. And suddenly, these two beggars jump up and they start calling him by name. He's not called by name here in Matthew, but in the other two accounts, he is. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. They're calling him by name and they're shouting for mercy. And so what do the crowds do? Well, knowing that Jesus is able to heal the blind, the crowds immediately part ways, pick up the blind men, bring them to Jesus and say, heal them. No, what does the crowd say? Hush, you're interrupting Jesus. You're interrupting the crowd. You're just blind beggars. You're nobodies. Pipe down. Keep it quiet just like the crowd. But before it was the disciples who didn't want the children to be brought. Now it's the multitudes who don't want the beggars. Don't bring beggars into this multitude. They're lining the road. It's all a scam anyway. They're not really homeless. I mean, come on. Nothing new under the sun. Ignore them. They're a nuisance. They're just making noise. And of course, because Bartimaeus and his buddy knew who Jesus was, they immediately sat down, folded their hands and meditated quietly. No, they began to scream. And the word that is used here, when they cried out all the more, the word is they began to shriek at the top of their lungs. You would have thought somebody was dying on the side of the road, the way they were screaming for Jesus. And it's a cry of desperation. It's a confession. We know who you are. And not just we know who you are, Jesus. They gave him a messianic title. Jesus, son of David, you are the Messiah. They knew who he was. This is an indication, not just of a hope for healing, but of faith. Have mercy on us. What did they know about the Messiah? Well, they probably had heard in their lifetime somebody reading from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah wrote for us, that when the Messiah came, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall birth forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. In Isaiah 42 verse 7, the Messiah was coming to open blind eyes. To bring out prisoners from the prison. Those who sit in darkness 
from the prison house. In Isaiah 42, 16, I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make darkness light before them and crooked places straight. These things I will do for them and not forsake them. In verse 18, hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. They knew he was Jesus of Nazareth. They knew he had done miracles. They knew he was the Messiah because they called him the son of David. They called him by his messianic title and they cried out, have mercy on us. Understand that by doing this, they knew that there was only one place to go to get what they needed. To Christ, to the Messiah. They didn't care about anybody else in that crowd. The people in the crowd tried to hush them up, tried to shut them up, and they cried out all the more to get Jesus's attention. And it actually worked. In fact, it stops and Jesus called out to them. In fact, first he called for them to be brought to him and he called to them and said, what do you want me to do? Jesus engages with them. They're making such a noise that Jesus stops. Jesus parts the crowd and says, let them come to me. Just like he did the little children. Now, I do think there's significance that there were two blind men. I know that Mark and Luke just tell us about Bartimaeus, but I think there's significance that there were two because the immediately preceding paragraph started with the mother of James and John saying, when you come into your kingdom, can my son sit on your right hand and your left? Jesus has been teaching and demonstrating the truth about status in the kingdom of God, who matters and who doesn't, what it means, what your place is, that the great are going to be servants, that the first are going to be slaves. And so we go from two disciples who are arguing and causing dissension with the rest of the 10 disciples, convincing their mother to argue for them to have the primary place in the kingdom on Jesus's right and left hand. And then we come to a crowd of people that are trying to hush up two blind men who everybody else thought should be ignored. And Jesus not only pays attention to them, he asks for them to be brought to him. And when they come to him, he asks them what they want. Now you would think that people know what a beggar wants, but Jesus asked them, you know why? Because Jesus is asking for a further confession of faith. Because if you're going to ask me to do it, you have to believe that I'm going to do it. And they said, we want our sight. And he said, your faith has made you well. He touched their eyes and immediately they could see. The transaction here in the contrast here is two disciples who were close to Jesus, his whole ministry, and two blind men who knew him, but whom Jesus probably had never met. They were nobodies. They were a nuisance to the crowd. And Jesus came to these least of these. They were incapable of finding him on their own. They were helpless. They were outcast for them to persist to continue to cry out. Now, you remember, there were two blind men in Matthew 9 that Jesus healed. And what did Jesus tell them? Don't tell anybody. He didn't want word getting out. That, that seems, well, why, Jesus, why would you? He said, the hour's not yet. If I heal you and you tell everybody and they realize who I am, they're going to take me and crucify me now. But it's not time yet. In God's providence, it's not time, so don't tell anybody. But now... We're coming out of Jericho, headed to Jerusalem for the triumphal entry, where the whole crowd is going to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This whole crowd is about to turn and profess, he is our Messiah, he is our King, crown him now. Now is the time. And what does the crowd say at first? Shh, keep it down. Quit making a big deal out of this. You see, in God's economy, timing is everything. Now it's time. 
Now they didn't need to be quiet. And now they cried out asking for mercy. Jesus, we're told, had compassion on them. He called them. And and the the picture here is so fantastic. In, In Mark's account, he leapt up leaving his cloak and ran to Jesus. This is Bartimaeus. Now think about this. I'm on a road in the busiest week of the year for collections for beggars. I have my cloak on the road. I am collecting alms. I hear Jesus of Nazareth is coming. I know who he is. I know what he can do. I believe that he can give me my sight. And so I'm going to cry out to get his attention because I can't see him. and don't know where he is. Nobody's going to help me get to him. I'm going to scream at the top of my lungs until Jesus notices me. And when Jesus, Jesus does and says, come to me, he leaves the cloak. You realize what he was willing to leave behind to follow Jesus? Everything. He left it all. Just to run to Jesus, to ask, have mercy on me. That is the desperation that's required for salvation. That's the pearl of great price. That's the treasure hidden in a heel, in, in a field. That means I'm going to give up everything and go to Jesus, and I'm going to persist in my screaming and desperation out to him for salvation until he saves me. And by saving me, it means I want Jesus and nothing else and nobody else. Spurgeon hit the nail on the head when he said too much of our preaching in our day, and that was in the 1830s and 40s. Too much of the preaching of our day presents a Jesus who no one is desperate to know. If there's going to be true conversion, there has to be conviction. There has to be the weight and the burden of sin. And we have to see Jesus as the solution. We have to come in desperation and cry out to him for mercy. This is, as we looked at it last week, the Pharisee that prays and the tax collector that prays and the the humble man beats his chest and prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This verse and what Bartimaeus says has had a special place in my heart from a church history perspective. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. If you know your history, especially just a little while before the Reformation, you know about a priest named John Huss. And John Huss decided, I'm going to preach to the people. He was in Bohemia. I'm going to preach to the people in their language so they can actually hear the gospel and believe it. (gasps) What a tragic thought. Well, that was heresy. You're not supposed to preach to people so they can understand it. You're just supposed to preach and tell them to trust you, take you at your word, and to do what you tell them. And what you need to do then is give your offerings to God. You notice the false church is always about money. It's always about money will get you whatever you want. You need indulgences, you need forgiveness, you need pardon, you need time off of purgatory. Cha-ching, cha-ching, that's the way to do it. Well, John Huss said, nope, not going to do it. I'm going to preach to the people in their own language. And as he did, he was told not to. He was tricked, he was betrayed, he was taken to the stake, he was condemned, and he was burned to death. He died singing this verse over and over until he could sing no longer. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. To cry out for mercy, whether it's because you're blind and a beggar or because you're a martyr being burned at the stake, we are nothing and we are nowhere without the mercy of Jesus Christ. That has to be our pursuit 
Because through mercy, we're reconciled to the Father. Through mercy, we have the forgiveness and the pardon of sin. Through mercy, we have new life. We're regenerated and given a new heart and a new nature and a new capacity for living. Through mercy now, we can want to do what is right and not only want to do it, but be able to do it. We can overcome sin now. We can walk and be pleasing to God. We can be righteous. We can be holy. Can you imagine? All of that because of the mercy of God. Jesus called to them. They leapt up and left everything and ran to him. And he said, what do you want me to do for you? And the answer was open our eyes. Give us our sight. And and really, the description there is not just for a physical healing. This is a cry for absolute total healing of themselves from the condition of sin. This is not just a cry for sight. This is a cry for salvation. When he does heal them. And says, your faith has made you well. He touches them and they see. The accounts tell us immediately they glorified God. And the result of their glorifying God was that the crowd praised God. Now think about that crowd for a minute. Just a few minutes ago, they were saying, hush, be quiet. You're interrupting Jesus. But their response in glorifying God was so dramatic and so enthusiastic. I have to think is at least as enthusiastic as they're crying out for him to have mercy on them. That their glorifying God resulted in the crowd praising God. Worship, true worship is contagious. Leonard Ravenhill said you don't have to advertise a fire. People see it and they're drawn to it. When you're on fire in the worship of God and you're glorifying him, other believers are going to be drawn to that and they're going to join you in praise. Suddenly that multitude was transformed. You know what those two blind men reminded them? Who Jesus really was. They knew, they thought they knew, they were following him, they were listening to him. Them telling the guys to be quiet really was a matter of, you're interrupting Jesus, he's our teacher, he's our master, we're following him, let him teach. But then they were reminded who he was. And they saw the miracle and they heard God being glorified and they praised him. Psalm 146 verse 8 says, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. This is what Christ came to do. And as a result, these two blind beggars became followers of Jesus. We don't know how long the other one followed. We know Bartimaeus probably for a long time because he's named. He's known in the New Testament church. This son of Timaeus has come and he's become a disciple of Jesus. Now, you know, that was just the logical next step because he already knew who Jesus was. He already believed what he had come to do and he already trusted him to save him. So, of course, the next logical step is to follow Jesus. This is a lesson for us in the church today because there are a lot of people who claim to be saved and they don't follow Jesus. They claim to be converted. They pray prayers. They go through the motions. They join a church. They're baptized. They join a class. They class. They, they get confirmed. And, and it's almost as if you, you hand them a fire insurance policy from hell and they wad it up, stick it in a drawer and then live their life like they want. And they don't follow Jesus. The truth, the evidence is not only an enthusiasm to come to Jesus, but a persistence to follow Jesus. This is the next logical step after conversion. If I've come to Christ and called upon him to save me, and he has saved me, I'm going to follow him. I'm going to bear fruit 
And it's the spirit in me. That's the great news. It's not even me having to grunt and strain to bear the fruit. He's going to bear the fruit. How easy is the Christian life? How easy is the Christian life when you realize it's all Christ and none of me? What do we have to do to live the Christian life? Get out of the way. Die to yourself. We make it difficult. We make it complicated. We overthink it. Don't believe me? You overthink it. I overthink it. Have you ever overthought your overthinking? Have you ever thought to yourself, I'm overthinking this. What does that mean? I should think about this. That's how our brain works. Have you ever gone to bed at night and said, Lord, just turn it off, please? If that happens, you know how to get it to turn off, right? Pray and praise God. Your brain will turn off. Then you have to fight to stay awake, praying to praise God. Somebody said the other night, they said, I, 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 I prayed. I, I asked the Lord to give me some extra time in prayer because there were some things that I needed to take to him. I knew I needed to intercede. I knew I needed to not be interrupted. So I prayed that God would give me a time for uninterrupted intercessory prayer. And he woke me up at two in the morning and I couldn't go back to sleep. <laughs> be careful what you ask. God will give you uninterrupted time to pray. But what better way to, what, what better way to spend that time and to know and to understand that when God moves in our lives, the evidence of that work is that we are transformed. They went from being blind beggars to being able to see and being devoted followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. To follow him. To go where he was going. Can you imagine the things Bartimaeus saw over the next week? In that crowd? With the rest of the disciples, not even in the inner circle, watching the triumphal entry. I, I mean, can you imagine if Bartimaeus had just turned the page in his Bible from chapter 20 to chapter 21? He actually probably witnessed the triumphal entry. And, and whereas just a few days before, it was just him and one other in all of that vast crowd who were crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. To just a few days later, the whole crowd, as far as the eye could see, proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior, and the King. You almost think they started a movement. Really, what they did is they just believed what they had heard. They heard Jesus was passing by, and they couldn't let him pass by without crying out to him for mercy. The application is really quite simple from this short text. It's that we are all born spiritually blind. This is our condition by nature. Born as sinners, we cannot see spiritual reality. We are spiritually blind. Second Corinthians chapter four tells us, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, but even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. When we look at our spiritual blindness and we look at their physical blindness, 
It's astonishing to me the change that takes place in our conversion when we come to know and to trust Christ and to call upon him to save us. Stop and think just a moment. What was the first thing in life that Bartimaeus and his friend ever saw? The face of Jesus. As he pulled his hands off of their face, as he took his hands from touching their eyes, the first thing they saw in this world was Jesus, the son of David. Born in this spiritual blindness, we don't want to see him, not in our natural state. And so he has to do a work in us. Ephesians 4 reminds us, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. How does the lost man live? In the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Think about, think about, the church at Laodicea. This is the church at Laodicea. And what does Jesus say to them? You say, I am rich. I become wealthy. I have need of nothing. And do you not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? Laodicea, a spot where one of the most famous places in that part of the world where a salve was produced to heal blindness and to help with eye problems. And what does Jesus say about the church there? You don't even know you're blind. Bartimaeus knew he was blind. He knew he couldn't see. He knew he needed help. In our spiritual condition, and as we're spiritually blind, we, we have no clue. But that's exactly what the word of God tells us. That's the way it is. In Romans 11, Paul writes, What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. And the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see. In Isaiah chapter 6, you remember this. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. We know from the New Testament he saw Christ in the temple. The train of his, of his uh, robe filling the temple with glory, filling it with smoke. And as he, as he has this interaction and he sees the holiness of Christ and he says, Woe is me, I'm undone. Tongs take that coal from the altar. They touched his lips, representing his conversion, his salvation, his sanctification, his healing. And then Isaiah hears God say, who shall we send and who will go for us? And what's his immediate re re reply? We, we appreciate Isaiah's eagerness. Here am I, send me. And we all like said, here am I, send me. But God prepares him for where he's going to go. He said, go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. God told Isaiah, when you go to these people, they're going to be blind and deaf and dumb and dead in their sin. It's going to take a miracle for them to be able to see the truth and to perceive who Jesus is. Here, here these beggars are, blind, but they knew who Jesus was. They knew what he could do. They came with faith and expectation. By the way, Spurgeon says the point that they were beggars has to remind us of Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who have nothing else but Christ 
and are willing to forsake everything else to have him. These two blind beggars, they went from faith to sight. They believed, then they saw. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 reminds us, we walk by faith, not by sight. We, we haven't seen Jesus. Peter and 1 Peter writes for us, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Have you ever given that much thought? You haven't seen Jesus. Now, you might have seen pictures of him, but that's not him, so stop it. You haven't seen him, but you love him. What did he tell Thomas and the disciples in the upper room? You're blessed because you've seen and believed. Those who haven't seen and believed, they're even more blessed. Because one day we are going to see him face to face, but now we know him. We love him. We trust him. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. People ask, how do you know that Jesus is who he says he is? How do you know that God even exists? And you know what the answer is for a believer? It's not just that I believe he is. I know him. He saved me. I trust him. I'm his and he's mine. It's the point that you can tell me all day long Jesus doesn't exist, but you cannot explain him out of existence because he is in my life, part of my life. He is my life because I know him because he came and sought me and found me and saved me. We know who he is. This, of course, this being born in spiritual blindness, this is the reason that we need to be born again. What happens when you're born again? What did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Nicodemus comes at night. He's a teacher. He's supposed to know these things, and he just can't wrap his mind around it. Later, we know Nicodemus trusted Christ. He believed him. He went with him. When he came to him that night, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assured, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What did he tell Nicodemus? If you're not born again, if you're not given a new spiritual life, you're still dead in sin. You're still blind. You're still deaf. You can't see. You have to be born again. So our immediate question is, great, how do I get born again? I'm going to grunt and strain to be born again. No, this is the work of the Spirit. This is regeneration. You who were dead in trespasses and sins, he has called to new life. Just like he called Lazarus out of the grave. And when he calls and that life is imparted, suddenly we can see. And what's the first thing we see? Our need for a Savior. What's the second thing we see? That Jesus is the Savior. What's the next thing we see? That we need Jesus above everything else. And when we see him, we cry out to him in repentance and faith. We flee from our sin. That's repentance. You understand, repentance has been defined sometimes so mechanically that it's just changing your mind. There's a dramatic change in our thinking. We go from not needing or wanting Jesus to not being able to go on another moment without him. And to be willing to leave everything else just to have him. To be born again. This is what happened with these men, with Bartimaeus and his friend. They saw their true condition. They saw Jesus for who he was. They saw their need for salvation, for healing. And they saw their path. That they had to be a disciple of Jesus wherever he was. Once he came near to them, wherever he went, they wanted to be. They were willing to follow Jesus. Again, I love Spurgeon's point. Spurgeon said, you have to ask, 
Where did this faith of theirs come from? They know who Jesus of Nazareth is. They know he is the Messiah. They're ahead of the curve. They're crying out to him for mercy, for salvation, for healing, for deliverance. How did they know? Where did this faith come from? We read in the Gospels over and over and over that the crowds saw the miracles that Jesus did and believed. These guys couldn't see a thing. All they knew was what people had told them. All they had was what they'd heard. They had not seen anybody healed. They had not seen anybody raised from the dead. They had not seen Jesus change the water to wine. They had seen none of this. But what had they heard? They heard about Jesus and who he was. They heard about Jesus and what he was doing. They heard that Jesus was coming near. That he was coming close by. And they heard and had known that the Messiah could give sight to the blind. You know what Bartimaeus and his friend demonstrate for us in a living parable? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. These men had heard the gospel preached to them because somebody could explain to them who Jesus of Nazareth was. They had heard the gospel preached from the pages of the Old Testament that the son of David, the Messiah, would come and give sight to the blind as an evidence of what he had come to do and who he was. They heard that Jesus was coming near and they willingly left everything to follow him. They trusted that he was who they had heard that he was. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The result is then that their conclusion drawn by faith was that this Jesus of Nazareth, this son of David, this Messiah who can give us mercy, this must be the Messiah. This is the Christ. To come to him and to tell him what they needed. Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight. They followed him. They glorified him. And the crowd praised God for what had been done. This really is a dramatic summary of Romans chapter 10. In verse 17, we have faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Back up just a few verses to verse 13 and whatever. What do we have? For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. These men are a living demonstration of that, not just a physical healing, but the spiritual reality that they were lost, they were dead, they were blind, they were deaf and dumb in their sin, but someone preached the truth to them. They heard the testimony about this Jesus of Nazareth and they believed and they hoped and they waited. And when he came near, they left everything to run to him, to follow him, to call on him, and they wouldn't be quiet. This, this uh, one commentator said, this is really a picture too of, of Jacob wrestling with God. They cried out and they screamed and the people said, be quiet. And they screamed louder and the people tried to stop them and they screamed even louder. They wouldn't be denied Jesus. Last point of application then is this. Once we've come to Jesus, once we can see who he is and we see our true condition we see salvation and we experience it and we follow in the path of a disciple. Here's where we have to be careful. 
You see, these men were desperate for Jesus. I'm afraid for too many of us, as we think we're growing in our walk with Christ, we fall into ruts into routine, into the common every day, and we're no longer desperate for Jesus. We think we've got him. We don't need him. And we're not desperate for Jesus. We need to have a faith that's persistent, a faith that is desperate, a faith that continues to cry out, have mercy on me. How often do you need God's mercy? All day, every day, from here on through forever. That's why it's new every morning. Praise God, His mercy is new every morning. And that drop of mercy you got this morning, it lasts forever. His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. You think we need to hear that over and over again because David wrote it over and over again. I think David was trying to remind himself. His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. How long is that? Well, it's going to go on forever. And after that, it's going to keep going on forever. And his mercy, it goes on forever. That tells us two things. Number one, God is a merciful God. Number two, we need a lot of mercy. And there's only one place to get it. And we need to be desperate for it. We need to be desperate in our daily life. For Jesus and his mercy. That needs to be our prayer. Jesus son of David. Have mercy on me today. And have mercy on me again in a minute. And have mercy on me again in another minute. Because I need your mercy. To have his mercy is really to have what? And this is the truth. To have received the mercy of God really is to be given Jesus. To be given Jesus. Now it's his life instead of our life. It's his fruit instead of our fruit. It's his will instead of our will. It's his reward instead of our reward. It's his inheritance instead of our inheritance. It's his position as our life is hidden with Christ in God. It's all about Christ showing us mercy. Do we want his mercy? And that's just another way to ask. Do we want him? Here's what it looks like, by the way, if we're not desperate for him on a daily basis. If we're not desperate for Jesus, if you are not desperate for Jesus today, you, by the way you live, will go out of here and you will deny him in front of men. Because the multitudes will tell you, stop talking about Jesus. Stop posting about Jesus. All you talk about is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Just stop talking about Jesus. It's not all about Jesus. You just need to live life. You need to divide the secular and the sacred. You need to go about your life in the real world. Folks, the life of the believer is all sacred because every moment is a moment that we're supposed to be glorifying God and worshiping him. That means if the world tells you stop talking about Jesus, talk a little louder. If people tell you quit posting about Jesus, post a little harder. People tell you don't, do it. Be desperate for Jesus because in your desperation, there are blind people out there who will receive their sight. They'll come to know who Jesus is and they'll be, they'll be enthusiastic to know him and to want him and to call out to him. How can they know? This is, again, we're back in Romans 10. How's how they know unless a preacher's sent? And everybody says, oh yeah, God will send the preacher. That's his job. Guess who the preacher is in Romans 10? Ta-da! You're all preachers. I know you like preachers who are enthusiastic. Listen, if you're not desperate for mercy, you're going to be a preacher who's bored, who's monotone, who has nothing to say, but tell stories about yourself. Be desperate for Jesus. And when the world tells you to be quiet, pray for boldness. Don't stop. Why? Because lives are at stake. Because eternity is at stake. Because this is our calling. We've got to find the sheep and bring them home. How's, how's Christ doing that? He's sending us. He's sending us. That's the means. 
So faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the word of God. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This week, this week, I want you to do something for the Lord, okay? Give you homework. This week, whatever happens, wherever you go, whoever you talk to, whatever the circumstance, be excited that you know Jesus. And listen, if you know him and you're not, open the altar. It's time for revival. If you know him and you're not excited, you find out what the sin, what the hardness of heart, what the bitterness is that's gotten in the way. And you confess it and you forsake it and you ask for a fresh anointing. You ask for the spirit to light you on fire. Be excited that you know Jesus and that he knows you. There's no greater thing in this world, is there? That we are his and he is ours. All the word of God's asking of us this week is go live like what's true. Be desperate for Jesus. Depend on his mercy. And give him the glory. Follow him. You're not going to mislead you. Follow him and give him the glory. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning, for this recollection from the gospel writers of these blind men who received their sight, for the compassion of Jesus, for their desperation, for the reality of the truth they confessed and the way they cried out. Father, I pray you'd remind us what's at stake and how much we do need your mercy daily. Father, as we face trials and struggles and as we even walk through victory and as we see you do great things to uphold the power of glory of your name, this week I pray that we would be a people who are excited to know you, who are loving you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, who can't be told to be quiet and to hush because we have to talk about Jesus because he's our everything. Remind us the reality And give us more grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we prepare to.